Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at BFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jason Karlovich, the author of The Problem of Alzheimer's, How Science, Culture, and Politics Turned a Rare Disease into a Crisis, and what we can do about it. In 2020, an estimated 5.8 million Americans had Alzheimer's, and more than a half a million died because of the disease and its devastating complications. 16 million caregivers are responsible for paying as much as half of the 226 billion annual costs in dollars of their care. As more people live beyond their 70s and 80s, the number of patients will rise to an estimated 13.8 million by 2025. Part case studies, part meditation on the past, present, and future of the disease, the problem of Alzheimer's traces uh, Alzheimer's from its beginnings to its recognition as a crisis. While it is an unambiguous account of decades of missed opportunities and our healthcare system's failures to take action, it tells the story of the biomedical breakthroughs that may allow failures to uh, that may allow Alzheimer's to finally be prevented and treated by medicine, and also presents an argument for how we can live with dementia, the ways patients can reclaim them, uh, their autonomy, and redefine their sense of self, how families can support their loved ones, and the innovative reforms we can make as a society that will give caregivers and patients better quality of life. Rich in science, history, and characters, the problem of Alzheimer's takes us inside laboratories, patients' homes, caregiver support groups, progressive care communities, and Jason Karlovich's own practice at the Penn Memory Center. Well, Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Galena. Oh, it's great to have you. So as we are living through the unprecedented times during the pandemic, a little bit more towards hopefully the end of the pandemic, I would just like to ask, how has it influenced you and your work? A lot. Um, Of course, there were some just acute issues around getting studies of our research done uh, that required face-to-face contact. And and we managed and things worked out. And in fact, um, both in clinical and research practice, the ability to use uh, telemedicine-type methods have been a tremendous, actually, uh, discovery and advantage, particularly for patient care. Persons are disabled uh, with uh, dementia. That's part of the definition of having dementia, disability. And the ability to connect with me via telemedicine as opposed to having to make the trip into the uh, medical center for many of my patients was a tremendous advantage. And so we're cautiously optimistic that our healthcare system will continue to support telemedicine visits 
um, for persons with uh, dementia. But the bigger, I think, influence of the pandemic was in my thinking, you know, because the pandemic to me, suddenly everyone um, felt what it was like to either be a person living with dementia or their caregiver, because all of a sudden we, 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 we realized how important it is to give care and provide care and how difficult it is to do that when all the services and supports are no longer there, like schools and, and other things. And in some sense, the pandemic was a big lesson for us you know, in America about the importance of care and caregiving and the need to support them. And boy, did we really see that played out, sadly, in long-term care settings, you know, residential settings, uh, where the family members were kept away and the residents suffered so dearly. So we really have had a wake-up call about the importance of caregiving. Yes, for sure. And you you perhaps, uh, well, you, of course, you know all of the families and carers and you know how important it is. But do you think that the public now starts to appreciate uh, this you can even say a profession of being a carer more. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I think that the media attention, you know, articles in the uh, 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 the press, the print press online, and also, um, uh, you know, television and et cetera, it was really quite impressive. I mean, I fielded calls from multiple reporters, colleagues as well. And, and I do think that um, in America, there was a, an awakening to the role of, as you said, the, the work of caregiving that I think suddenly people had this sort of, oh, my gosh, you know, caregiving isn't just some sort of side activity. It's, 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 it's work, but it's morally important work. Um, that is to say, it's not just labor like custodial care, which is what it used to be called, actually, believe it or not, as though humans were buildings, you know. And, but, but I think we've recognized the moral importance of and the moral role of a caregiver in the life of someone who's disabled, particularly someone who's cognitively disabled, because the caregiver has to sort of step in and help them to fully uh, uh, execute their agency and, and, and even sort of their moral experience to fully, you know, um, exercise their, 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 their personhood. And, and so I think we've had an awakening of that. And I, I, I'm cautiously optimistic that going forward, um, in my country, where we've sort of neglected paying attention to caregivers, that we might finally begin to do that. Yes, for sure. It's just a bit sad that we needed pandemic for us to appreciate oh. caregivers. Unfortunately. Yeah, no, I call it the copper lining, you know, to the pandemic. I won't even give it a, a silver uh, grade, let alone gold. Mm. You know, it's a copper lining. But, you know, um, it was an awful natural experiment. And from it, we have learned. We have learned. I hope we can carry that lesson forward, though. And you yourself, so you mentioned that uh, you changed your thinking a little bit during the pandemic. Is there any, any other way that you changed? Perhaps you developed new hobbies or ways to cope with the stress that we're all under? Well, uh, quite frankly, I, I'm a big believer in an, uh, a practitioner in, in, in exercise. And uh, for a number of years, I had stopped running. Um, in lieu, I was swimming. And of course, for a while, obviously going to a, a gym, let alone a pool was not la possible. So I started running again and, uh, and it felt great. It was like, you know, it, it was, it felt awful actually for the first few weeks. I mean, truly awful. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and now it's like, it's great. And I really feel proud of myself that like, you know, I could pick up an activity I used to do, 
Um, and, 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 you know, not as probably as fast and whatnot, but I, I, I was really pleased with that. Um, and I also cleaned out my basement. Oh, wow. That's yeah. impressive. <laughs> oh, <laughs> very impressive. So that sounds like a bit of a personal sil- silver lining there. <laughs> you know, in, in our country, we had an election as well, a national election. And I, I helped out, uh, I helped disabled people vote, people who were homebound and, you know, getting to the ballot was going to even be harder. Um, and that was extremely fulfilling. Oh, that's interesting. So uh, were there volunteer centers like this? Yeah, yeah. So I trained to help disabled people vote. And then I would go to her house. I went to her house and helped her get her ballot, got her ballot, helped her to complete it and then returned it for her. And then I also worked as a poll worker during on election day to help people get to the get get into vote and vote safely and whatnot. It was a very fulfilling activity. Excellent. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background? Yeah, I'm a physician and I'm a writer. I um, I divide my time between those sort of tasks or, or, or talents, I guess. Uh, one day a week, I see patients at the Penn Memory Center, and the rest of the week, I sort of work on a variety of research projects as well as my writing. Um, and, uh, uh, most of my clinical work and my research is involved in, um, the care of and thinking about the challenges of living with caring for and research that involves, uh, older adults who have, uh, cognitive impairment, um, and the disease model that we focus on is, is Alzheimer's disease. Um, although we're expanding into other areas like, um, traumatic brain injury and, and um, other disorders of consciousness. Um, and I, I help, I co-direct the Penn Memory Center, which is a clinical care and research center at the University of Pennsylvania. And as I say, I'm a, a writer and I, you know, I, I obviously wrote the book, The Problem of Alzheimer's, and, and then before that, a novel called The Open Wound, The Tragic Obsession of Dr. William Beaumont. And then I've written a variety of essays for sort of uh, general audiences and uh, kind of pondering two new ideas as well uh, for books. We'll see where they go. So how did you get interested in neurology? Well, um, indirectly, I trained in internal medicine and then did additional training in geriatric medicine. Um, and at that time of my fellowship training, I was also doing training in, in the scholarly work in bioethics and was very interested in issues in research ethics. And so I kind of focused on uh, the ethics of research that involves uh, persons living with dementia. And, and then I um, came for my first faculty appointment at the University of Pennsylvania, where I still am on faculty, and was pursuing you know, issues in research ethics, as, particularly as they relate to persons living with dementia, and sort of got drawn into the clinical work as a physician. And kind of one thing led to another, and I, you know, just sort of made it more and more my focus. And I kind of, you know, moved from an internist's somewhat um, uh, uh, loose uh, understanding of cognitive disorders to kind of amateur cognitive neurologist understanding. And, and, and I've just continued to find it a very fascinating area. I find the neuroscience interesting, the neurobiology, neuroanatomy, um, the clinical expression of it, of these diseases. But, but what really animates my interest is um, the intersection between 
um, diseases of the brain, uh, ethics, uh, and culture. I just find that continually to be a rewarding um, set of, of topics. And how did your interest in writing arise? Um, you know, it's one of the, even before I was a doctor, I, I was writing. I can't say I was a writer yet. I don't know when one who's writing becomes a writer. Um, you say, well, it's when you're, you say, well, it's when you're published and so well, published what, you know, but anyway, I digress. Um, you know, I always did writing even when I was a, you know, a boy, you know, um, you know, journalism, things like that. In college, I helped, uh, run a newspaper, um, and, you know, and I wrote a variety of short stories and things, but really, um, you know, I, I, I kind of on my website, just, just my name, jasoncarlin.com. I have a section on my writing and, and, and there's an opening essay there where I sort of ex- look back on the history of my writing career and kind of date it to an essay I published in the Lancet early in the, uh, this century. Um, uh, uh, and then since then the variety of essays that I've written, um, and, you know, and I, I really enjoy writing. I find the act of crafting a well-composed sentence to be incredibly satisfying. Um, and from that, a well-composed paragraph and so on. Um, and I, it's interesting. I get, a, I get a lot of satisfaction after I step away from the desk with the feeling of having composed something and, frankly, get antsy when I'm not doing it. Um, yeah, I just find the act of composing a well-written sentence to be incredibly satisfying. I guess in the same way painters painters must feel when they put paint on canvas and it just looks right, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, it looks like you're really passionate about both of these two fields, which can be a bit incompatible. So I wonder if you have any advice for the young career scientists or younger uh, people of our l- listeners who are considering career and maybe not sure whether they should, they should follow their passions. Oh, one should always follow one's passions. I suppose if one feels they're at contradiction, you know, go there and find the resolution. Um, I don't feel that they're in sort of competition or conflict. I mean, um, you know, medicine is inherently a narrative-based profession. I mean, it's about storytelling, you know, finding out from a person what's wrong and then saying it back to them in a way that makes sense to them. So, so I've always been comfortable with the practice of medicine as being inherently narrative. Um, you know, I, I, I do understand the, you know, how a scientist who wants, who enjoys writing, wants to write, like it might find that um, a, a dilemma. But I don't. I think even there, I mean, you know, the, the 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 task of sort of telling what science is doing, the role of narrative in helping people make sense of science is, I think, neglected and essential. Um, and so I think, you know, there is a kind of a role for the, for the scientist, the neuroscientist, scientist in general, who aspires as well to be a writer. And then there certainly are models out there of folks who have done that. You know, I mean, obviously, I think you want to pick an area of your research that lends itself to sort of translation and explanation to the general public or whoever your audience is. And I really want to emphasize that. You know, I always tell my trainees, you know, you know, who's your audience? Who are you writing for? Who are you writing for? Mm. Who's, your, who's your audience? Because um, I think people just sort of write and they don't really realize, well, who am I writing for? You know, and it, just because you're a writer doesn't mean you have to write for, quote, the, the general public, whatever that is. You know, I actually don't think I write for the general public. I think I think I write for a particular kind of individual who is sort of interested in these ideas. Uh, you know, they're not professionals per se, but I, I wouldn't view my writing as sort of, entertainment, which I suppose would be writing for the general public, I guess. 
No, for sure. And uh, of course, you bring uh, your expertise uh, quite masterfully in this book. So you don't sound patronizing, but also you, you know, you're very clear on on very, very complex uh, concepts. So how did you come to writing this book and why was it important when you did it? Well, it's funny. This book was this book's for a long time. What I mean by that is, you know, there was an arc of a sort of story of creating the book. I look back in my notebooks. I'm a kind of a pretty habitual notebook writer. And I was pondering the idea of this book as far back as 2008, I noticed. I got busy on the novel, and so that kind of kept it to the side. But as soon as the novel was done, I kind of pivoted back to this book um, idea. And then the journey of it was how much is this book about me versus how much is it about Alzheimer's? And in, in the end, kind of a resolution of, you know, the, the sort of allocation of, of the narrative, the focus about, you know, me versus Alzheimer's disease. And, I, and, and, and that took a while to arrive at. You know, the original working title of the book, I didn't think of it as a working title at the time, but the original title of the book was My Profession, Confessions of an Alzheimer's Doctor, or alternatively, My Confession, Professions of an Alzheimer's Doctor, which I thought was a clever play on all those words. Anyway, that worked for a while, but but then I felt it was just too solipsistic. Um, and, and then it became the House of Alzheimer's, which got at the sort of themes of how Alzheimer's disease is very much like all diseases, but especially Alzheimer's is, is, is bound in culture and constructed out of culture. And, and then that title fell away. And then it was the disease of the century and then COVID hit. Anyway, my point is, um, you know, given the work I was doing in, 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 in uh, bioethics, neuroscience, uh, medicine, I, I just felt there's a need to write a book that helps people understand why this disease became a crisis um, and understand that not simply as a story of too many older adults, but, but that's only part of the reason why it became a crisis. And then I wanted to help people understand how this disease has been through some revolutionary changes in our understanding of it and is still in the midst of, and is in the midst of another revolution. And I just felt a real responsibility given where I stood and what I knew to tell that story. And, and then, and, and, so I did that, and, and, and so I wrote the book, although, I, as I point out in the book, I think one of the things that finally got me really going was I, I got so emotionally moved by my patients' stories that I thought there was a real need to, to tell their story. And so, so all that added up to, you know, you've got to do this book. And so yeah, I did for it. sure. <laughs> so from the scientific point of view, what are the definitions of Alzheimer's? And dementia. So these terms you mentioned uh, a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. The most common question at a clinical encounter <laughs> uh, or a speech, you know, what's the difference between Alzheimer's disease and dementia? And the way we've understood that for a long time, although with our lexicon got things confused, is, you know, dementia describes uh, uh, chronic, uh, progressive, disabling cognitive impairments. In other words, someone has trouble with memory, planning, attention visual spatial function and those problems in cognition cause them to be disabled they're not able to do things that they used to do without someone else helping them and um uh that's dementia uh disabling cognitive impairments that are progressive and then there are many different diseases that cause dementia um right now in, in developed uh nations uh uh 
the most common we think is Alzheimer's disease, although the more we study it, the more we see it's very heterogeneous. But there are other distinct diseases that cause dementia. One of them is Lewy body disease. Uh, and and a, a famous comedian in America had that and kind of brought attention to the disease, Robin Williams. Um, frontotemporal lobar uh, disease is another cause. HIV infection can cause dementia. Uh, left untreated and some individual, many, some individuals, uh, syphilis infection can, can cause a dementia. In fact, it was the most common cause of dementia, probably in the 19th century, uh, generalized paresis of the insane. So many different diseases cause dementia, one of them is Alzheimer's. So that's the difference between the two constructs. And I narrate that in the book and explain that and also how that's all transforming and being radically changed. All right. So uh, why is there a problem with Alzheimer's disease? Yeah. So, you know, once upon a time, Alzheimer's disease was a rare disease. Um, and then a series of scientific and cultural events uh, transformed it into a very common disease. Um, and then some political events made it a crisis. But the events that turned it from rare into common um, were scientific advances, namely advances in microscopy, the ability to look at the brain, um, measurement of cognition, uh, other sciences that, that improved our ability to measure um, the, the brain. But there was also some key, I think, cultural events that occurred in the 20th century, particularly in the second half of the 20th century, because by the end of the 20th century, there was really a, a, a no, notable kind of transformation in the way we thought about what it means to be an adult, namely that all adults, all adults um, have an inherent right to have their self-determination respected. All adults have autonomy and that autonomy should be allowed to flourish and, and they should be able to self-determine their life. So, you know, once you sort of say, well, now, wait a minute, there are all these older adults who can't self-determine their life because they've got senility and that's just normal aging. You suddenly say, well, wait a minute, there's something bad about normal aging. It seems to get in the way of being a fully a person. And, and then when the scientists come along and say, well, yeah, if you look in their brains, you see all these plaques and tangles and whatnot. You say, well, so wait a minute, that that's, looks like a disease, right? And, 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 you, and so you mm. put that together. And what you do is you transform senility, an extreme stage of normal aging, into the disease called Alzheimer's disease. And that, that happened by about the 1970s, you know, that, that, that turning occurred. But what made it a problem, what made it a crisis were the events that followed. And, and what followed, and it's variable across nations, but, you know, a series of social, cultural, political events all kind of have worked together in varying degrees to make it a crisis. Um, my focus in the book is, is the states, the United States, but I think people in other countries will readily see um, aspects of their own nation, um, either sadly recapitulated or not um, uh, recapitulated, um, because they have not had some of the challenges that we've had in this country. But in brief, in America, what they amount to are uh, changing notions of the family, um, family size shrunk, um, spread out, changing roles within the family. It no longer became acceptable to say, well, the women of the family just take care of people and stay at home and do that. And that's just what they do. Instead, there was a recognition of the distinct role of the caregiver, you know, and that's a distinct role. It's not wrapped up in other roles um, like wife or daughter or daughter-in-law. 
And that caregiver needs to be supported, something that in this country, though, we've not done very well. Whereas in other countries, I think there's been much more attention to providing services and supports to caregivers. Um, and, and so that, um, uh, the, the other stream, of course, was just the recognition of the disease within the scientific community. In other words, while it was recognized, certainly, particularly in neurology, it's a small cadre even within neurology, and you still had to change the culture of medicine to sort of not see dementia as just extreme state of aging for which there's nothing you can do about, you know, but rather a disease that needs to be diagnosed, researched, and ultimately treated. And, and I, you know, even colleagues told me that in, even to the 90s, 1990s, you would have people say, why are you studying that disease? There's, it's, just, it's, just a, it's just extreme aging. There's nothing you can do about it. And so in summary, you can sort of see a host of mostly social, cultural, and political events sort of kept this as a crisis or kept, made it into a crisis and kind of explained why we are where we are right now. So has the aging population also contributed to the rising numbers? So yeah, yeah, no, no question. That, mm. Yeah, no, that, that, you know, that chronologic age is associated with increasing um, risk of developing uh, dementia, particularly after about age 75. And some of the fastest growing age groups are people 75 and 80. And again, I'm not trying to say that, 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 that that's not a contributor. It, it, of course, explains why there are so many people. But, you know, you have to then factor in there aren't enough people to care for them. And that gets back to the changing structure of the family, as well as the changing um, roles within families. You know, I'll, I'll say something which I don't mean when I say it because I don't believe it. But one way to address the Alzheimer's crisis would be to roll back women's rights. It would be to simply say that, you know, the woman belongs in the home and she's the natural caregiver and 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 to expand the size of families again. And then you'd say, well, we just have this inherently homebound caregiving workforce that will just take care of these people. Now, I'm not saying that would solve the crisis, but it would do a lot to sort of address the long term care needs. But but at a tremendous cost. I mean, I don't at all endorse that idea. Uh, by the way, you could say the same thing and just make it men who have to do that. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But I like the example of women because once upon a time, that's the way things were. And then that all changed. And I think changed for the good because I think, you know, the life of women in the 20th century is a very interesting story of the triumphal autonomy. You know, at the beginning of the 20th century, there were vast areas that women were just simply not allowed to participate in. Um, and, 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 and their lives were severely constrained with, in terms of their liberty and their self-determination. And again, as I said earlier, I think that one of the things that allow us to finally see Alzheimer's disease as a disease and not some normal aging in the extreme is it, it offends a very cherished value, which is the right to self-determine your life. You know, long before you have troubles with bathing, dressing, grooming, feeding, toileting, long before those problems, the problems of Alzheimer's disease for an individual are troubles making decisions, picking out where you want to live, deciding what you want to wear, picking out what you want to eat off of a restaurant menu. You know, things that are sort of quotidian, but, at, you know, for details of life, but for an individual are essential for sort of, you know, being Jason versus Galena versus Pierre. Um, yeah. And as you mentioned, some of these preclinical symptoms, they occur really decades even before the any any other kind of really really bad manifestations of the disease so why do you think we're still not very good at picking them up uh because of the stigma or something like that well a couple of things there so what i was talking about you know long before someone needs help with bathing 
dressing and grooming the late stages of dementia. You know, in the mild stages of dementia, what they have are troubles managing their money, traveling, ordering off a restaurant, mm-hmm. etc. The term you use that's a very important term in the field, an emerging term is preclinical. So the preclinical concept of Alzheimer's disease is still a work in progress, but the word itself kind of defines what's going on there by what it's not, namely the person's not disabled. They have no, they have no cognitive impairment. And you're right, the field now, you know, it kind of has always known this, but but for a variety of reasons, which I explained in the book, couldn't quite get their hand on it. But around the turn of the 21st century, you know, the year 2000, quite literally, some key events happened in the history of Alzheimer's. And in the book, I was able to interview these scientists who did this work. And the two key events were the validation, uh, a discovery and validation of a concept known as mild cognitive impairment, uh, which describes cognitive inefficiencies that put someone at risk of developing dementia. And then the second key event was the discovery of a ability to use a radio tracer um, to visualize amyloid in the brain of a living human, not someone who's dead under a microscope, which is the way it had always been done, but a living human. And that those two events, the discovery of mild cognitive impairment and the discovery of, 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 of amyloid imaging, the, and the, the agent was called Pittsburgh Compound B, those were revolutionary events because they began to change the way we thought about Alzheimer's. So at the beginning of our conversation, you know, you had asked me what's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia, and I explained that. And, you know, if for much of human history, you had to have dementia to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Well, what happened after the turn of this century was you no longer had to have dementia to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's. You could just have mild cognitive impairment or just have biomarkers measured even if you have no cognitive impairment. And that's where the field is going. So that was a very circuitous answer to your question, which is, you know, why has there been reluctance to diagnose the disease before there have been symptoms? And I explained in the book a host of reasons. Some of them, many of them are, are policy-related and economic, though it's showing what the value of an early diagnosis is to a society who has to pay for that. But you're right. Another one of them is the stigma that surrounds the disease. You know, what you're going to do by diagnosing the disease in a preclinical, pre-dementia state is spill the stigma of the disease over into vast, larger numbers of individuals who, you know, we found from our research, and I reported in the book, are very worried about the stigmas they'll experience, the discrimination, the shunning, because now people know their risk of developing cognitive impairments and they themselves know they're at risk and feel less about themselves as well. So, yeah, we're, we're at the dawn of this new age of a biomarker-defined disease. And I think we're in for a perilous several decades of how we're going to figure out how to live with that um, a new way of thinking about the disease. So what were the mo- most memorable stories and encounters that really influenced your thinking about uh, Alzheimer's? Well, you know, the the two that I mentioned certainly um, are on that list, namely, you know, my own professional sort of coming to terms with and making sense of the concept of mild cognitive impairment, because I trained, you know, in the late days of the you had to have dementia to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's era. And so hoisted upon me was this different conceptual model, which is, you know, this idea of mild cognitive impairment. As a, as a stage of Alzheimer's disease. And, and that certainly for me was, was, a, was a, 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 a seminal event. 
And then the rise of the biomarker-based definition of the disease, as I, as I mentioned with, with Pittsburgh compound B, but then other biomarkers obviously have been discovered. Those have been really you know, transformative for the field, but also for me um, professionally. Having said that, those are two very biomedical th- events, but you know, more ju- more sort of uh, culturally and 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 I, I suppose even philosophically for me, a, a very seminal event has been kind of a turning in my own language uh, with how I think about um, the disease. And so there are two events there. Uh, one is the recognition of the role of the caregiver as a distinct role, and really seeing the historical positioning of caregiving. You know, caregivers have been around since the Bible, um, you know, when Ruth cared for her um, uh, mother-in-law, Naomi, you know, in the the book of Ruth in the Old Testament is a story of caregiving, actually. But, you know, Ruth is never called Naomi's caregiver. But so I I, I, the recognition of in my own in my research of the rise of the caregiver was very sort of transformative. And then another key kind of transformative event uh, for me professionally was 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 a change in language around how I talked about. Uh, persons living with dementia. If you were interviewing me, say, 10 years ago, certainly 10 years ago, I'd be talking about demented, you know, well, a demented person, you know, um, someone who's demented. And I don't talk that way anymore. That just doesn't come out like that anymore. I would say someone, a person who's living with dementia, you know, people who are living with dementia. And so what you're trying to do is sort of transform them from the adjectival demented to making them still a subject, namely a person and among their qualities are they're living with dementia. So they're not demented adjectivally. They're just, they have many qualities, one of which is they have dementia. And that was a very big event for me to kind of help foreground the personhood of these um, uh, patients who, who have a disease. That's said to rob them of their personhood. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you actually made that point about really humanizing uh, patients as such, because you can see that maybe younger people are not even that interested in going to uh, geriatrics, isn't oh, it? Oh, gosh, um, no, yeah. No, my field is not that popular. Okay. Although we're seeing more succumb. We're, we're, granted, we had, given the low rates of enthusiasm to pursue a career in geriatrics, any improvement was in the right, it had to only improve. And I will say, you know, we find at our, at our memory center more young um, trainees coming to want to work in the space. So there's no question that compared to 10, 15 years ago, we have more people wanting to train. We still need a lot more, but I am encouraged. I have hope for the future. Yeah. So what about the most recent science that we have on understanding the processes that underlie AD? Yeah, so we've made spectacular progress. I mean, the progress in biomarker discovery is really, if you think about it in the arc of history, it's pretty impressive. I mean, here we are, 2021, and, you know, the biomarkers of Alzheimer's were, were began to be described in the 1990s with spinal fluid measures, but they were very sort of difficult, messy, and poorly calibrated. I think the big breakthrough was the discovery of um, radio tracer imaging techniques like um, for amyloid and now for tau. So, you know, radio tracer techniques and structural MRI have now allowed us to essentially see Alzheimer's disease in a living human. Um, and that, that's enormous because prior to the 21st century, the only way you could definitively diagnose the disease if someone died and you were able to basically, the term of art is harvest their brain <laughs> and slice mm-hmm. it up and stain it and look, 
you know, so it, it kind of kept the disease as the sort of gothic horror story, namely, you know, I know you're impaired. I know you have dementia. I think it's probably Alzheimer's, but I won't be able to tell you until you die, which means you'll never know. <laughs> um, and that, that has been a, a, a transformative um, event. Now, now, what's equally transformative is the more we pursue our studies of uh, the biomarkers of, of the brain, this now an autopsy tissue, the more we discover that in a population of persons who, you know, have a story of dementia that sounds like Alzheimer's disease, you know, memory loss, et cetera, that only a small fraction of them only have Alzheimer's disease pathology. You know, only a small fraction of them only have amyloid plaques between their neurons and tau tangles within the neurons. And, and, and the majority have other pathologies as well. Um, and I describe this in the book, you know, uh, ubiquitin, uh, TDP-43, vascular lesions, Lewy bodies. And, and, you know, well-done autopsy studies show that the presence of these pathologies do influence the clinical expression of, of cognitive impairments. They're not just passive actors. Um, they seem to be related to some degree to different clinical phenotypes, different kinds of, 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 of clinical manifestations. Um, some of them vary with the age of the individual. Um, so, you know, there seems to be some temporal ordering to how these pathologies present. All of this is to say that what we're discovering, you know, was once kind of a simplified disease and all science demands simplification so that you can have a model to move forward. But, you know, we're looking back and seeing how we had a simplified understanding of the disease and the word, the word of, of, of the day, you know, that's, that's on everyone's lips, if you will, is heterogeneity, you know, that you have to see this disease mm. as heterogeneous. And you know, I don't have a problem with that. I think that that's the beginning of a deeper, honest um, uh, coming to terms with the truth, you know, and, and once one does that, you can start to sort of help to sort of solve the problem, you know. Um, and so, you know, I, I think the, 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 the notion that, so you say, well, what's the consequence of this heterogeneity? And I think one of the consequences of it is, you know, we're not going to drug our way out of Alzheimer's disease. I mean, I think the data are showing us that we probably can expect that for some persons with the disease, we'll make spectacular progress with therapies that may slow or, you know, substantially um, um, dampen the, the rate of decline. I think, though, much like um, other complicated diseases, there'll be individuals whose disease is not responsive to therapy, again, because of the heterogeneity, et cetera. And, and so I think, you know, I, I, I think that this translates into a policy point, which is the notion that we're going to, quote, cure the disease is, is just that. It's a notion. You know, this is not like COVID, where we have not one but three effective vaccines, you know, discovered in less than a year's time. Um, I think we're going to have to plan for this disease to be a disease that becomes chronic. And again, for some very treatable and for others, not so treatable and, you know, and in, and in between. Uh, so despite uh, sort of our best efforts, they can, there's still a bit of a disconnect in communication between professional physicians to general public uh, and understanding of the disease. But I'm interested in your perspective on the, the communication between you as a physician, but uh, with the basic scientists who are studying the disease. So do we see more collaboration and sharing of expertise, or is there still a bit of a gap in between? Oh, I think there's much more collaboration, yeah. And I think 
you know, a, um, the biomarkers have been one of those bridges because they mm-hmm. kind of what they've done is they've sort of sort of brought the neuropathologists into the into the clinic and 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 vice versa. Um, and, you know, they've 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 lend themselves to much more rigorous correlation studies between, you know, what do you see in the brain and what do you measure outside the brain? Namely, you know, so the clinicians are the people outside the brain, you know, measuring its behaviors. Right. You know, cognition, uh, uh, function, uh, you know, all kinds of ways to measure the brain, you know. Uh, uh, and, and, and meanwhile, the, the imagers and the others. Uh, uh, basic scientists get the various fluids and things and look at the brain. Well, now you can take real-time data from both sets of research and put it together and look at the patterns. And so I, I think there's a, there's a tremendously exciting kind of dialogue going on now between the basic scientists and the ways they understand and measure the brain and the clinicians. I, I will say, and I do point out in the book, I think, you know, there's an increasing sort of um, uh, uh, disquiet over the role of animal models. You know, mouse models have really kind of been um, a frustration, I think, in the, in the neuroscience field in general, um, uh, particularly mouse models designed to understand uh, human diseases. Uh, you know, we've made tremendous progress with understanding um, Alzheimer's disease in mice, including how to be able to first give it to them because of course they don't get it in nature. They have to genetically engineer mm-hmm. them. And, and, you know, once we figure out how to genetically engineer them, you know, we could do all kinds of really elegant experiments and, and whatnot, but the, those data have been helpful to sort of advance models. But I, I think that they have been of ambivalent value for understanding the disease in humans. And in fact, at Recanto, um, mouse models almost thwarted the discovery of Pittsburgh compound B. Because mouse models um, uh, did not um, show uptake of the radio tracer, um, and had the uh, Chet Mattis and Bill Clunk followed the normal science rules, um, they would not have gone into humans. They would have stopped because the mouse models failed um, to uptake Pittsburgh compound B. But they chose not to do that. Actually, they they just said this just has to work. Um, given everything we have. And so they jumped at, oh, 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 um, I, I tell in the book what they did. It's rather fascinating. And it's a time quite brave. And, and, and the rest is history. Um, so I do think in the basic science space that has relied on animal models, I think it's been a little, I think the amount of effort and, and expenditure has arguably not been proportionate to the return. Yeah, for sure. We have cured AD in mice multiple times, but yes. not in humans. That, that is that is essentially the the punchline. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, what are the current uh, treatments, if not cures, for Alzheimer's that we have? Well, you know, it's it's a little frustrating, and I narrate in the book. Um, there are right now very effective treatments um, for dementia, um, and uh, these are treatments that address the uh, behavioral, emotional, and social. Uh, uh, and functional needs of patients and caregivers. And they've been shown to, to benefit, reduce emergency room use, Im- decrease depression, improve quality of life. And yet, you know, depending on what country you live in and in the United States, what state you live in, they're variably, if at all, available um, to patients um, and family members. And that, that's just 
disappointing. And that reflects not science, but policy and politics, the lack of, of access to those kinds of effective therapies. But, you know, implicit in your question was, you know, treatments for Alzheimer's is, you know, if we think of it as a biological disease, which I do, you know, what, what treatments target the biology? And there we still have none. Um, there are some on the horizon, like very near horizon, that I think are emerging more and more as promising. Um, the data show some effect on disease course, probably, although I think we're still trying to work out some of the, uh, the, the last bits of that. But, I, you know, I think that we have to begin to think that we may be able to alter the natural history of the disease, albeit, again, alter it, not arrest it. Um, and then another key point I point out in the book, in fact, the whole last part of the book is, although we have no effective treatments that go after the pathology that causes Alzheimer's, uh, the last 40 years has shown a consistent finding that the risk of getting dementia has been declining. And um, this has been shown in multiple well-designed uh, longitudinal studies in multiple countries that, you know, since about 1970, the five-year estimates of risk of dementia have not kept up with what we thought the risk would be. You say, well, now, wait a minute. I thought dementia was a real problem. There are a lot of people. And the answer is, yes, there are a lot of people. It's a real problem because there's so many older people. And age is a key risk factor. But there aren't as many people with dementia as we thought there would be. And the answer to why I narrate in the book is, is a story really of, of social progress, namely access to education, uh, access to consistent health care, um, uh, uh, our, our, our kind of summative ways of showing how lifelong habits have helped us to maintain brain health such that we've reduced the risk of getting uh, dementia. So there's a policy message there, um, independent, you know, of any effective drug treatments for the disease, we can do things that maintain our brain health. So what would be any of those uh, sort of prevention strategies that we should be thinking about early in life? Yeah, I mean, it starts out with um, going to school. Uh, I mean, multiple studies, and these go back to the 70s when some of the early researchers like Robert Kastman went to China. You know, Kastman um, studied uh, dementia rates in Chinese uh, 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 people. And mm. what he observed was that there were, there were women in particular who were absolutely illiterate. They had never held a pencil in their hand, he, he recounts. And they had very high rates of dementia. And he, his early studies, and I don't quote them in the book, I just couldn't work it all in, but he was one of the earliest researchers to show that the um, a number of years of formal education a person had were linear related to uh, a decreased risk of developing uh, dementia. And so, you know, persons in particular who were illiterate, who had never had any education, he found were at much higher risk later in life of developing dementia. And, and, and so fast forward to the United States, late 20th century, the Framingham study, some 75 miles outside of Boston, a very well-known you know, uh, longitudinal studies since the 1950s dedicated to heart health. Well, around the 1970s, they began to measure brain health, and and they 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 produced their results several years ago, showing again if you had more than a high school education, you had a reduced risk of developing dementia. And and then the question, mm. you know, why is that the case? Why should nations invest in schools? Well, there are many reasons to have an educated populace other than reducing the risk of dementia. You know, but the, the, we think what might be going on there are probably two things at work. 
Number one, um, this idea of cognitive reserve, that there's something about education which builds a better networked brain. Words here start to get more metaphorical, I think, than, than scientific, but a brain that's better able to withstand the rigors of, of, um, of, uh, 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 of disease. But then there's something else about education, which is education equates to opportunity in terms of access to um, uh, income, uh, health care, uh, uh, stable um, uh, living arrangements, et cetera. And, and so there's probably a, a kind of a combination, if you will, of biological, social and economic um, exposures going on that are made possible by education. And then, you know, there's strong data as well about how heart healthy um, uh, life styles and, 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 and approaches are associated with preserved uh, brain health. Oh, such a great example uh, about uh, education. Absolutely love it. And actually, on the flip side, um, the social aspects of your environment also makes really big difference, doesn't it? So thinking about the non-study where um, in elderly uh, nuns, uh, people found high levels of tau pathology, for example, in a brain, but they didn't actually have the cognitive impairment. Exactly. or elderly in, a, in Japanese communities. So how does uh, our social circle influence uh, our, our risk? Well, yeah, I, I always um, remember sort of a couple of years ago, data came out about um, uh, lab studies that, you know, gave various animal models um, nurturing versus non-nurturing environments. And these were animals that were, you know, again, jiggered to develop um, Alzheimer's type pathology and they found that the animals that had nurturing environments, you know, mice cages that were full of toys and other mice and all the other things, that those mice were less likely to develop cognitive problems than the mice who just got fed and had the wood chips to play around in or whatever. And, you know, people got all excited about those data. I remember like, oh, my gosh, look at that. They say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hmm. So in the Bible, if you really wanted to publish, punish someone, you would banish them. <laughs> You know? mm. And in and in penal systems, the ultimate punishment short of execution is solitary confinement. Um, and humans, when they gather, you know, in addition to enjoying a meal together, what do they do? Well, they entertain, you know, they sing, they dance, they read, they perform. And you sort of look at like, you know, human flourishing is about, you know, social engagement activities, et cetera. And so, you know, I'm not trying to make mockery of the studies that I was talking about, but they kind of, you know, put a little scientific muscle, I guess, behind an observation that's as old as man, humankind, namely that, you know, it's not good that, that humans are alone, um, especially if they don't want to be alone. And, and so I think, you know, what we're showing is that there's a role for things like the humanities and public spaces and um, other kinds of ways to bring people together, dare I say, in civilization. Um, and it's not just about entertainment and whatnot, but it's about kind of health, dare I say. So, you know, am I trying to make the case build more opera houses to prevent Alzheimer's? I think that's probably a leap. But, but I guess in some sense, I am saying, you know, if you want to kind of make a population more healthy, investing in cultures is, 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 is as important as investing in science. Um, it's not mere entertainment, if you will. Yeah, for sure. And uh, we're not just talking about reducing the actual pathology in a brain, but it's about uh, giving people more autonomy and humanity. 
So, for exactly. example, a person can be developing de- dementia, but can still be quite autonomous when they have support of the community who do not shun them, who do not just put them in the elderly care home. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, one of the revelations I made as I was writing the book, and it's very much in the book, is we have to see this disease as a disease of autonomy. That's, that's sort of what makes it a disease, you know. Um, mm. You know, disease in the end has to have some story of suffering. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, for many diseases, it's called, well, it's about loss of life or pain or loss of function. And, I, and, and in this disease, early and relentlessly, it's a chipping away at autonomy. And so I think, you know, our role as a society is to help people preserve their autonomy. So, you know, when you think about the disabilities of dementia, they're not disabilities in the sense of physical disability. You know, if you gave me curb cuts and ramps and an elevator, I, who have a physical disability, could get into your building, right? And then now I'm no longer disabled. You know, I was able to get in because there was a curb cut and a ramp and an elevator, so I could get into your building. Well, with dementia, it's not about curb cuts and ramps and elevators. It's about designing the world so that I can negotiate it in spite of my cognitive impairments. Some of that means the physical world, but as I point out, and as I point out in the book, you know, that's where we think we ought to see tremendous progress with artificial intelligence and related robotic technologies that can particularly fill in for the um, moral agency of people where they sort of lack, mm. you know, ag- agentive capacities. But I, but I think no amount of artificial intelligence can make up for humans caring for humans. I mean, there is something about a human which has the ability to care, which a, a robot can't do. And you say, well, you know, what's your problem? You just don't like machines. And the answer is, you know, I don't think maybe someday we'll have robots that fully occupy the dimensions of moral agency and moral experience that make someone human, have a human mind. But I think robots are high on agency, but low on, if any, moral experience. And so that's why they don't have a human mind. And so back to my point, you know, if you see this as a disorder of mind, dementia, well, you need another mind to help support that mind. And that's where humans come in. And that's back take back to our earlier remarks about the role of the caregiver. Yeah, great point. So I wonder, what do you see as first steps uh, that we as community can take towards normalization of conversation around dementia, but also maybe some structural changes that are needed in our health systems? Well, in our country, my country, United States, you know, we need a long-term care social insurance program. So to any listeners who are from Germany, you know, your country has a good model of one, for example, and many other nations have some sort of long-term care services support systems in place. And the United States just doesn't have one. It's an embarrassment. We need to change that. Um, so that's one structural change. I think we need to have a space race of technology um, that really uh, uh, <coughs> develop, harness, and disseminate all these variety of, of sort of Internet of things that allow people to live in a monitored world that's still um, um uh, uh, maintain some degree of privacy, fills in their deficits. I think we should see, really attend to how the financial services industry um, has a role in both detecting people having early cognitive problems and preventing them from suffering some of the consequences like losing their money from mistakes or fraud. Um, and then I think we need to attend to our culture. I think we need to think about how we need to clean up our language. I mean, you know, you can still see pharmaceutical ads that sort of effectively depict someone with dementia as a zombie. 
and that very word zombie mm. and the rhetoric of death before death and the living dead, et cetera. You know, I get the sort of um, emotional frisson that's created by, by that kind of talk, but I don't think that that kind of talk is very helpful. I think, I think it just sort of advances a, a stigma narrative that is crushing. Um, I, I don't think we need to scare people about Alzheimer's. I think the fact that it causes a loss of autonomy is scary enough. I don't need more rhetoric around being a zombie and a non-person and all that other stuff. I just don't think that's very helpful. And I think that needs to just kind of be kind of cast aside from our rhetoric. So then in your perfect world, how would we prepare for a possibility of having dementia later on? Well, you know, I think we need to be more planful. I think we need to recognize that Maybe there's a brief period of time when you go to the doctor and you go alone, and, and maybe it's good that you go alone. I mean, there's some things you don't need anyone else in the room to talk about. I'm not, you know, uh, but I do think as people start to enter into the ages of risk, uh, 65, 70 plus, certainly as people learn that they're at risk because they've had a biomarker test that shows they have a marker of, of, of the pathology, we need to structure a healthcare system that immediately allows bringing others into that clinical an extra clinical encounter, you know, um, creating a network of people who are going to help watch over and take care of. And that the word there is network, you know, both to diversify the expertise and also minimize risks of fraud and abuse and exploitation. I mean, yes, you know, some, many people have a spouse who naturally fills into that role, but that spouse may develop dementia or develop another illness, etc. And so I just think that we can't rely on natural structures to just fill in. And moreover, you know, we need to guide even the natural structures that are there. I say natural meaning, you know, a spouse, things like that. They're not really natural. They're socially mediated. But um, but even, even a spouse ought to be encouraged early on to sort of, after learning their relative is at risk of developing cognitive impairments, what are the kinds of things you need to do to plan? And they're not plans around like, you know, when you're in the late stages of disease, how do you want to be cared for? They're plans about like, okay, where are all the financial accounts? How are they managed? How are they run? You know, um, where do we live? How, how, how dependent are we on transportation, um, uh, et cetera? You know, that kind of immediate term planning needs to be what's addressed. Um, you know, this obsession with advanced care planning that involves talking about hypothetical future states of extreme disability, I just find to be kind of a, kind of a bizarre thought experiment. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, and uh, I'm glad to, that you brought up that concept. So the planning itself is really key and being scared of the disease is unproductive, but being informed about it is extremely valuable for the future. Yeah, look, all disease is bad, okay? That's just the definition hmm. of disease. Find me a disease that's pleasant and you've either found it's not a disease or you're a masochist um, or a sadist, I guess. But, you know, and this disease is distinctly unpleasant and, you know, no amount of rhetoric can make it pleasant, but we can reframe the way we think about it to make it something that we can live with. Yeah, for sure. Before we develop the cure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, we've seen that in some other diseases. Cancer is still awful. In my family, we lost some people to cancer. Others have it and have lived. Um, but we lived with it. Uh and I'd like to see the same thing with Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, for sure. So we've taken up a lot of your time. And but can you tell fun. us what are you? Yeah, so what are you currently working on? 
what is your next project? A uh, couple. I've got a couple of essays. I'm kind of enamored of John Keats. I don't know if I'll ever write that, although I've jotted about it. Um, I'm writing something about it at Canamab. I'm not sure what I'll do with it. Um, but I'm really interested in consciousness, and I've been taking a lot of notes around disorders of consciousness. And then I'm kind of haunted by a physician character who uh, uh, has been quite successful uh, towards the later part of his career, I guess, has been, uh, and uh, uh, says something that is uh, uh, in a moment of, of emotion, which has consequences uh, that ramify. And I'll see where I go with that story. Uh, but that, that, that's a, 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 a character. Uh, which my guess might become a novel. We'll see. Sounds really interesting. So consolidating your place as a writer, right? <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> Thank you so much. So where can our listeners then find more information about the book and also your work? So you can learn all about me and my writing on my website, jasoncarlowish.com, jasoncarlowish, K-A-R-L-A-W-I-S-H.com. The book is called The Problem of Alzheimer's, How Science, Culture, and Politics Turned a Rare Disease into a Crisis. And most any bookstore-type website, you know, IndieBound, indie as well as the big ones, you know, Amazon, Barnes, it's on there and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, and uh, Kindle, ebook, Nook print, hardback, and an audiobook as well is available. I read some of it as well on the audiobook. So all three formats. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Galena. Take care.